My name is Richard Moore. I'm your host and informant for everything church, theology, and faith related. Churchpreneur's vision is to accelerate the church in mission, vision, and effectiveness in fulfilling the Great Commission in our communities. Churchpreneur's hopes to embolden people to fulfill the Great Commission beyond their own borders into the rest of the world within this generation. In this podcast, I talk about everything that's moving me in relation to church and theology, hopefully to empower you in your ministry, church, Bible study, theological understanding, and most importantly, your own personal growth in Christ. Today, what I wanted to do was continue my series on the Rediscovering Bethel Church uh, episodes, podcasts that Bethel and Bill Johnson and Chris Valatun and Dan Farrelly produced. Uh, it was a series of six uh, videos, uh, po- podcasts that they produced um, to try to answer critique and questions that Bethel is presented with quite often. And so uh, this is, I'm going to try to cover in this episode, I'm going to try to cover episode Two, um, that is, uh, they titled that episode "Jesus, the Cross, and Preaching." So I'll put that link in the description. I'm not going to show any of that video because uh, of copyright. Bethel typically wants to uh, give people a strike on their YouTube account, and I would appreciate not having strikes on my YouTube account. I will quote and give timestamps for the videos. Um, so I'm reviewing their video without having um, that video be played on my YouTube because I like to not get strikes on my account. So, um, yeah, so we're going to cover this episode. Uh, this is, again, episode two of the Rediscovering Bethel series. Dan Farrelly and Bill Johnson uh, are in that episode, and they're sitting across from each other. And Dan Farrelly interviews Bill Johnson and asks him questions, and they go back and forth. And so I'm going to try to deal with what they said in that video, in that podcast. So let's get into it. So at the beginning there, uh, Bill Johnson um, starts to talk about um, the the famous quote where he basically says, Jesus laid aside his divinity. And so Bill Johnson says that what he's trying to do with that is he's trying to give language to a new generation on, on how to accomplish the great commission of Jesus um, and to put language to it. Uh, so my question is, and, and he actually says, uh, I believe it's this episode, that uh, he's going to change that quote. So this is uh, Bill Johnson's book, When Heaven Invades Earth. It's uh, been out for quite some years. In 2003, I believe it was, uh, that he published this book. And uh, so what he uh, is asked about by Dan Fairley asks him, hey, this quote in this book of yours, uh, it's uh, caused controversy and stuff like that. And so let me read it. Um, This is, uh, again, Bill Johnson, When Heaven Invades Earth, and it's chapter 2, page 29. Jesus could not heal the sick, neither could he deliver the tormented from demons or raise the dead. To believe otherwise is to ignore what he said about himself, and more importantly, to miss the purpose of his self-imposed restrictions to live as a man. Jesus Christ said of himself, the Son of Man can, the Son can do nothing. In the Greek, 
that language, that word, nothing has a unique meaning. It means nothing. He's trying to be cute there and, you know, um, yeah. Uh, just like it does in English. He had no supernatural capabilities whatsoever. While he is 100% God, he chose to live with the same limitations that man would face once he was redeemed. So basically he's saying that uh, Jesus was like a saved man, like a redeemed man, um, not God. He made that point over and over. Jesus became the model for all who would embrace the invitation to invade the impossible in his name. He performed miracles, wonders, and signs as a man in right relationship to God, dot, 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 not as God. If he performed miracles because he was God, then they would be unattainable for us. But he did them as a man. I can, I am responsible to pursue his lifestyle. Recapturing the simple truth changes everything and makes possible a full restoration of the ministry of Jesus in the church. So this has been published for now 20 years, uh, give or take a few months. And, um, it's stood there forever. And there's other places in this book as well. So let me just deal with this quote real quick. Anyways, this is not true. This is not accurate. Jesus did his miracles as God. He was God. He can't not do his miracles as God. He can't, he can't all, likewise not do his miracles as a man. He was a man and he was God, fully God, fully man in one glorious union and didn't do anything in this, on this earth as only a man. He didn't breathe as only a man. He breathed and lived every breath of his life as God and man in one undivisible or indivisible union. He can't divide up and say, well, you know, today I'm going to do uh, this miracle or change the water into wine as man only today, or uh, tomorrow I think I'll use my God nature. It, it, it's impossible. He's indivisible. That's what the councils of Chalcedon and Nicaea founded. It's a done deal. Those theologies are fixed. They're solid. They're not debated anymore. And that's what I expressed in last episode <clears throat> that Bill Johnson and uh, Dan Farrelly said, oh, these things have been debated for 2,000 years. That is not true. Those who would say that Jesus did something not as God are considered to be outside of Christian orthodoxy, theological Christian orthodoxy. Jesus did everything as man and God simultaneously throughout his life, and now he sits in heaven at the right hand of God as the God-man, as the man of heaven. So um, this, is, this is not accurate. He did not do his miracles as a man. He did them as God and man simultaneously. Um, so this is not accurate. Then, um, as well on page 79, he writes this, Jesus lived his earthly life with human limitations. Now, that is true. He did put limitations on himself. He can't, you know, God is omnipresent. Jesus was not omnipresent. Uh, God is omniscient, and there seems to be a, a very, very good evidence that Jesus did not know all things, um, or at least he limited himself to that, that, uh, that with, and put that prerogative, that godly prerogative on the shelf, but he did not put his divinity on the shelf. So here's what he says. Then he says, Jesus lived his earthly life with human limitations. 
He laid his divinity aside. Um, as he sought to fulfill the assignment given to him by the Father, to live life as a man without sin, then die in the place for mankind. Um, he, he did not lay his divinity aside. So this, uh, on page 79, he as well says it, that Jesus laid aside his divinity. That is not accurate. Jesus did not lay aside his divinity. He laid aside the prerogatives of, on his divinity. He didn't act on his divinity uh, at being on earth. Like I said, he wasn't omniscient or omnipresent um, and, and maybe not even omnipotent. Um, he showed his power for sure as God. Uh, we have to admit that there, he did things that sust suspended the laws of nature. People don't walk on water. Um, and no one has ever since that I'm aware of. Uh, people can't calm storms, no matter how much these NAR leaders say they can calm storms and stop tornadoes and all the things like that. Uh, they have not, and they cannot. So uh, Jesus did not exhibit or uh, use his godly divine prerogatives, but he was divine during his entire life on earth. So when he went to heal, let's say the leper or somebody, right? He healed the leper. He healed the leper as God because he was God. He did not lay aside his divinity and say, well, I'm going to heal this leper. Um, he did not, um, he did not do anything not as God. And likewise, he did not do anything not as man. He was man and God at the same time, simultaneously indivisible. He could not divide his natures. The natures of, of, of uh, God and man are in one holy union. At the incarnation, Jesus took on flesh the pre-existent Christ, the holy God, the Son, took on flesh and now is a man forever. Um, and so um, these are incredibly inaccurate statements. So what he says, Bill Johnson says this at the beginning of the show, he says, basically, we're, we're trying to give language to accomplish the great commission of Jesus. Now, I don't know what he means by accomplishing the great commission. The great commission is go therefore and, and, uh, you know, preach the gospel to all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and lo, I'm with you to the end of the age. I mean, that's the Great Commission. I don't understand why uh, you would need to diminish the divinity of Jesus to fulfill the Great Commission. But anyways, he's trying to put language to it, he says. And so my question is, he actually says that part of his book is controversial and, and has uh, been a kind of a thorn in his side for the last 20 years. People kind of go to that and say, hey, what are you talking about here? And so he said he's going to take it out. He's going to edit the book and take those phrases out. Um, I, I don't know what that means necessarily. Does that mean he's going to retract those statements and say, I was wrong? Uh, the, or, you know, which is it? So, so he said at the beginning, I'm just trying to give language to, to the Great Commission and to fulfill the Great Commission. And then he said as well, he's going to take that section out. So which is it? Is, is he going to edit his books? and take those parts out, are they correct or are they not correct? If they're correct, then why would you take them out? If they're, if he's trying to give language to the generation to fulfill the great commission, why would you take them out? If they're correct, if they're, if he's trying to empower a generation, why take them out? But he's not admitting that they are incorrect statements. They're theologically aberrant. 
And he has had that book published for 20 years. Why just now? Why not 20 years ago? Why not on the first, second, third edits? Why not retract those statements and admit that they're incorrect and, and, and repent from them? Or does he stand by those Christological statements? Um, are those things not accurate? Are those things wrong? If they're wrong, then say they're wrong. If they're right, then leave them in your books. Don't take them out. If they're right, then they're right. If they're wrong, then they are deeply, deeply wrong. Either they're right or they're wrong. And he needs to stand up and own up to it. Don't just take those things out of his books. You, you don't just edit those things out. Those things aren't just like, don't just disappear uh, slowly, you know, or, or, you know, hmm, they're not in the third edit or fourth edit, whatever the edit is, I don't know. Um, you can't just, you can't, you know, if you're editing spelling or something, that may, that understandable, but you can't take out a thing that's been in a book for 20 years that says that Jesus was not divine or laid aside his divinity. The, the real question is, was Jesus divine? Is he the divine second person of the Trinity, not obfuscating or covering up his divinity in any way, just taking on flesh at the incarnation? And if that's the case, if you believe that, then stand by it. If you don't, then retract and repent for this these false statements. And that's just a few of them. In that book, there's way more. He, he basically, that's the theme of every single book that I've read by him, that Jesus isn't divine in some way. He did his miracles as, as man so that you and I can do them too. So uh, you can't just retract it quietly. Admit it, repent, recant, um, recant them publicly. And he just said, well, in that, in that episode, he just said, we're just going to take them out. You know, they've been such a, such a bone of contention sort of, and people kind of come at that and that's the only thing they look at and see. So we're just going to remove it. Um, that's, that's not okay. You know, uh, he needs to say I was wrong. These things are inaccurate and I, I don't believe them but he does believe them and he doubled down on his belief in them by saying that Jesus did his miracles only as a man in those episodes, in this first one and this one. But he's not going to do that. He's not going to recant. Um, he's not going to repent from these uh, viewpoints. So Johnson and Fairley actually obfuscate here. It's very unclear where he stands. Uh, he's going to remove those Christological things, uh, you know, which which ones we don't know. He doesn't really say which ones he's going to remove from his book, but he's going to stand by them and he's still teaching them and he's teaching them to this day. It definitely sounds like to me, he's, he stands by those, those viewpoints, but he's just going to remove them from his book. So, um, it's a little bit confusing, not clear. Um, and so he's trying to appease. This is a, the whole, the whole video series. As I watched the, all six of them, it's all PR. It's all trying to appease people and, uh, show the public, look how wonderful of people we are. We're not bad. Like, how could you think we're bad? Um, all this type of stuff, but he definitely obfuscates here. He does not tell the truth. He doesn't say that those statements in his books are wrong, just that they're going to remove them. And that's not okay. I mean, you can't just, you can't have taught this for 20 years and then all of a sudden say, well, we'll just remove them from our books because they're, they're so controversial.
Fairly, Dan Fairly then moves on to explaining that Bill apparently occasionally teaches that Jesus was born again. Uh, so this is another uh, very, uh, he's critiqued quite a, a bit for this viewpoint. So this is Bill's attempt to try to explain that away and that he doesn't really teach that Jesus was born again. Uh, Bill said uh, that he said one time that Jesus was born of a virgin and then he was born again in the resurrection. So it's not like, it's interesting, uh, Dan Fairley brings it up and he says, oh yeah, I remember that was in a, a church service and I sort of said it on the side. I said it to try to provoke the room a little bit. Uh, this is funny because uh, this is a, a teaching from Kenneth Copeland and Kenneth Hagen that Jesus was born again. Long, long ago, um, they, these guys taught that Jesus was born again, um, and it's just a re repetition of that of that uh, viewpoint. Um, and so it's it's just a, a regurgitation of all these old uh, word of faith heresies. Yeah, so all these old uh, word of faith teachers have taught these this viewpoint for a long time that Jesus was born again. And, and you actually uh, hear the hints of it in that quote that I read to you out of, uh, out of uh, when heaven invades earth in on verse on page 29, he says, while he is hundred percent God, he chose to live with with same limitations that man would face once he was redeemed. So um, he kind of hints that, that uh, you know, Jesus was redeemed or born again in some way. Um, and so we can be born again in the same way that Jesus was born again. And we have that same type of redemption that Jesus had. So it's very tedious, very tenuous type of teaching. And uh, he's just regurgitating and repeating them. So he says he's only uh, taught it once from the stage. I, I can't confirm or deny that. I, I don't know. Um, I believe I've read it somewhere else before from him and when heaven invades earth or in the supernatural power of a transformed mind books, but I don't, I don't have a quote. I couldn't, I couldn't locate that again. But, um, anyways, he says he's only said it once, take his word for it. Um, but that's enough <laughs> because Jesus wasn't born again. He wasn't born of the Virgin Mary once and then born again a second time. Um, he wasn't born again. We are born again. He doesn't need to be born again because he is uh, perfectly sinless. Um, so, and that's also stands in the creeds. Um, it says he is like us uh, in our human nature, sin apart. So he is sinlessly perfect and doesn't need to be born again. It's not, it's not necessary. Never does the Bible teach that Jesus was born again. He was resurrected from the dead. He doesn't need to be born again. The eternal God of the Trinity has no sin that he would need to be born again. That is a status or a necessity that only belongs to men, not Christ. God regenerates and quickens people by the second birth only. Jesus never needed to be born again. As is described in John uh, chapter 3, that is an experience that solely belongs to men. God, by the power of the Holy Spirit, resurrected Jesus from the dead, and he is the firstborn from among the dead. He was not born again. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, and he is unique. He doesn't need to be born again. He had no sin, and thus uh, was unnecessary for him to be born again. Um, so to be born again, he says, it wasn't a new theology, a new point of theological importance or something like that. 
uh, but just to get the people in the room to think. That's what Bill Johnson says. That's the reason he said it, um, to sort of provoke the room because they were sleepy or something. I don't know. <laughs> the, uh, the question is, what's he trying to get people to think about? Um, it, if you're just sort of provoking the room or, you know, getting people to wake up, that's what he says a lot in his communication style. He just sort of pokes sometimes just to see what the room is doing. But that's a awful, awful teaching strategy. If you're teaching the word of God, you don't poke the room, you teach what the Bible says. And, you know, if he's provoking the rumor or poking and, you know, getting people to think, what is he getting them to think about? That Jesus was born again? Even just that statement, you know, he was born of the Virgin Mary and he was born again is the quote. So let me pull that quote up. Um, I have it here. Um, he, he said in this sermon, he said, he was born through Mary the first time and through the resurrection the second time he was born again. Um, that's in a sermon in 2009, he said that. So if he's trying to get the room to think, what's he trying to get the room to think about? Uh, because that thought is heretical. Um, it, it, Jesus didn't, was not born again. He did not need to be born again. So, um, yeah, it's, it's really strange. You know, he, he says he'll provoke the room. Um, so nowhere does the Bible say that Jesus needed to be born again or was born again. Um, so Johnson is again, obfuscating and using imprecise and made up language to describe something that's described pretty precisely in the scriptures our born-again experience and how we must be born again, like John 3. Um, and using that to get people to think, again, what is he getting people to think about? That Jesus is just like us. That's the thing. That's his hope to, to, to sort of bring Jesus down a peg and bring us up a notch, to sort of get us on the same uh, playing field, looking eye to eye. We're um, on the same level but that's not true. That's not accurate. Jesus is the second person of the Trinity, the eternal God. He is unique. We are not him. We cannot arrive at his level. We can't do the same miracles. We can't be the same person. We can't be born again like he was because he wasn't born again. Um, he's trying to just uh, obfuscate and, and bring Jesus down a peg. So we're basically just like Jesus, and that makes us capable of doing the same things that he can do because we're born again too. So again, miracles are such a high value at Bethel and with, with Johnson that he has to sort of bring Jesus down a peg so that we can come up a notch and, and, and level us up a notch and put us on the same level so that we can do the same things Jesus could do. So if Jesus was born again, that helps us um, as well because, hey, we're born again too. So we're just like Jesus and we can do the same things as, as you read in, um, uh, as I read in uh, When Heaven Invades Earth. He says that Jesus, We'll be able to do the same things that Jesus did when, while he, because when we were redeemed. Let me read that again. It's very, very interesting. It's subtle, but it's what he believes. Um, it says it here. Um, he chose to live with the same limitations that man face would face once he was redeemed. So man is redeemed in the same way, in his opinion, as Jesus was, and thus we can do the same things he did. So what's the point? Tell us. What's the, you know, make it clear, Bill. 
Don't obfuscate. Don't generalize. Tell us exactly what you mean. What are you trying to tell people to think about in the resurrection about his born-again status? What do you want people to think about? He says he wanted to get the people to think about something, about the teaching that Jesus was born again. What does he want them to think about? You don't say something unless you mean it. So did you mean it, Bill? Did you mean that Jesus was born again? If not, retract that statement, pull it back, and clarify and clarify with the public and your people that Jesus was not born again. He is singularly important in human history. We must be born again, not him. Uh, We must be redeemed, not him. So Dan Fairley then uh, defends Bill's born-again teaching by saying that Chris Vallotton proposes these things too. Chris Vallotton is the prophet at Bethel, and that he's not making a teaching up or something like that. He's just proposing something. So either they're teaching it or they're not. If you're preaching from the stage, proposals aren't meant to be taught. Like, I propose this an idea. And, and Chris Vallotton says, I want to propose to you, or I want to, you know... <laughs> You, you can't just make propositions and say, hmm, you know, if you're teaching as a Christian, as a pastor, you're preaching the Bible, you don't make propositions. You don't create stuff. You, you don't, um, you know, sort of try to propose a new idea. <laughs> you preach what the Bible says. You teach who Jesus was. You don't make new propositions about who Jesus was. Can't do it. <laughs> because those theologies are written in stone, literally in concrete, in my opinion, (laughs) by the creeds, by the New Testament writers. You can't create new stuff. You can't propose new things. And so uh, Fairley says, we're just trying to propose new ideas, get people churning in this. Keep your proposals to yourself. Maybe do it at home if you want to propose to the the (laughs) mirror. I don't know. You want to make a proposal to your family? Keep them to yourself. If you're preaching the Bible and what Jesus did and who he was, who, that who he is, his nature, and what the scriptures say, don't propose things, teach them. Teach them. Teach what stands on the pages of, of scripture. Um, that's where these guys get off the map, as they say. <laughs> you know, Bill Johnson says we got to go off the map, and off the map means um, using something else besides scripture having an experience. As Bill Johnson even claims himself, they go, they go off the map. They propose things. They provoke things. They just say things that aren't in Scripture. And that's where these guys go wrong. So then uh, Bill says that he preaches uh, to the faith in the room, quote-unquote. Dan Fairley says he even sees and notices uh, that Bill gets pithier or pithy. Um, as uh, there's less faith in the room, he sees that he gets, he gets that way. He gets pithy. He gets more obscure and more unclear on purpose because there's not faith in the room. He's trying to get people to wake up and lean in and they don't understand if they don't understand something. And uh, they preach to an encounter. That's the interesting thing. They preach not for information. They don't preach to, to get people to understand uh, the scripture or who Jesus really is. Uh, he says Christians don't need more information. This is all found in this preaching section in this video, in this episode. Um, Bill Johnson doesn't preach for information, but he preaches to faith in the room. This is interesting because how do you see faith? Um, how do you know there's faith in the room? 
if people are going, whoa, or that's it, that's right. Uh, you know, one of the things they'll say in, at Bethel and in the NAR altogether is, come on, come on, come on. So if there's faith in the room, I guess presumably there's someone saying something back, saying, come on, or talking with him or confirming it through an amen, or I don't know. Um, how do you know there's faith in the room? Um, but that's probably part of his apostolic anointing. He's apostolically anointed so that he can actually, he can actually see in the spiritual realm, um, the faith in the room. Um, that's part of his apostolic leadership. I, I take it. I don't know, but, um, how do you actually see faith? Um, very interesting thought and question. Maybe it's, he sees it through the reactions he gets from people. I don't know. So um, he can notice, I guess, when there's faith in the room and when there's no faith. Uh, so this is also claiming quite an amount of authority uh, that he would be able to tell or see faith somehow, notice it somehow, somewhere. Uh, he says he looks then for, quote, eyes of fire to figure out where faith is. Now, what in the world does that mean? Um, <laughs> eyes of fire. I guess it means people are looking excited. Uh, is that what he's looking for? Exciting excitement in the room, um, eyes of fire. So when he preaches, he's preaching to eyes of fire. And if that's five people in the room, he says, then that's great. If it's a thousand, that's great too. He'll minister to everybody, but he's looking for eyes of fire. I guess uh, that's what it means to preach to faith in the room. So what do all these things mean? He preaches to eyes of fire. Bill wants to uh, make sure that he's saying what the father is saying and doing what the father's doing. Uh, this has got to be an incredibly tiring task. So if the father's doing something different uh, here or there, you have to keep in tune with the father, you know, keep that tuner, that frequency tuned to the right frequency uh, and keep in tune with the father to know what he's saying and doing at any specific time. And this is sort of taught throughout the movement as well to kind of keep yet, keep your tuner tuned to hear the father's voice, to know what the father's doing at all times, do what the father's doing, hear what the father's saying so you can be in line and in, and in perfect alignment. Uh, I know people who've come out of the NAR that are so exhausted. They're so beat up. They're so downtrodden because there is this constant push to know what the father's doing at any given time to hear what he's saying and do only what he's showing us to do. This is an exhausting Christian life, folks. And the Bible never tells us we ought to be doing it this way, that the Christian life is always being in tune with the father. Scripture mainly talks about obedience and sanctification for the Christian life. Let's face it, walking in obedience to the Word of God is hard. <laughs> People don't want to do that. It's hard work, but it's doable, right? Now we who are in Christ, we are able to obey God. Before, we, did, we, didn't have, we, we were not regenerate. We couldn't obey God. But now we can walk in holiness, and that's, but that's hard. It's not as easy to try to listen to some obscure voice somewhere out there. I think the father's saying this. I don't know. I think I heard, but maybe that was the burrito I ate last night. I don't know. You know, like it, what, how do you know? You know, it's just some subjective, obscure, 
listening to tuning in. How do you tune in? I want to tune into the right frequency. I've got a like an antenna tuner. I want to get the downloads from heaven, all this type of stuff. The scripture says that God has given us everything we need for life and godliness. We don't need to tune into some random weird frequency that you think might be the father saying something. So that's, uh, again, very, very tenuous. Bill then says something very, uh, very, very precarious. He said that Jesus recognized faith in the Syrophoenician woman, and only then was he able to do something in that situation. When the Syrophoenician woman responded in faith uh, was when Jesus was able to recognize what the Father was doing. Only then could he act uh, because faith was released uh, to him to see what the father was doing. And then he acted. This is really problematic. So, so Jesus only can respond to God, what God is doing. If faith is releasing him to hear the father. So like the tuning frequency tuner is faith. And if, if Jesus, if the Syrophoenician woman released the faith, then the tuner was tuned to the right signal. And Jesus could then hear what the father was doing. This is really, really bad. So Jesus needs help to understand what the father's saying and, and if the father's allowing him to heal this woman. Oh, man, it's, it's uh, no, like, no, no, no. Jesus is God again. He has perfect unity with the father. There's no like, you know, like thing in between that's, you know, the signal's not getting through because there's not faith. You know, if the faith is in the room, well, the faith was introduced into the, into the, the connection between God and Jesus. Oh, then there was a perfect signal. Then he, then he was on the right frequency. No, 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 no. Um, so Jesus can only respond to what God's doing if he has a little help. Um, Jesus is the second person of the Trinity joined inextricably in nature with him. <laughs> Jesus is by Johnson's standards only able to recognize what God, his own heavenly father is doing because this woman had faith. <sighs> no, 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 no. This is a problematic. And I know they teach this in other places. Bill Johnson teaches that God, the father is able to do something in response to faith that Jesus is able to do something only because he sees what the father's doing. Um, like I think he teaches at the, 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 uh, the wedding at Cana, where Jesus turned the water to wine. At first, he heard the he heard that God wasn't uh, turning the water water to wine. He wasn't doing anything. He first heard the Father saying, "No, not now." And then Mary, Jesus' mother, um, said, "Hey, Jesus, do something here, please." And then he listened to the Father again. And because Mary's faith was in the atmosphere, then God was changing his mind, basically, in essence, and turning water to wine. I mean, it, this is the type of typical type of teaching in the NAR, tuning in with the Father, doing what the Father does now. You know, this time the Father's saying this, this time the Father's saying that. I mean, it's got to be extremely tiring. It's got to be extremely tiring, and it is. I know people who've come out of this movement who are exhausted from this type of um, effort, this type of you know, always wait, am I hearing God right? Am I on the right thing? Am I, am I tuned into the right frequency? 
So that's what this produces. So, so this type of teaching, uh, they often propose it, that, that Johnson, he's taught it for many years, that, that we can sort of enact God's plan uh, or, or we can hear God better through faith. Um, and once that faith is sort of there in the, in the atmosphere, then God's doing something. This is really, really tenuous. Uh, and it's sort of that old, an old recycling of that, uh, that word of faith prosperity type of theology. Once your faith is in the room, then it enacts what God's doing. So Bill Johnson describes his, uh, his how he learned this practice of seeing faith in the room by working with young adults in, in Redding, California. He said, uh, he tells students uh, that, that he was working with, I guess, um, not to, don't do what I do, don't do what I did, you know, but then he goes on to tell what he actually did in this podcast. So don't do this, but I'm going to go to ahead and tell you what I did. So he's basically saying, basically saying, don't do it, but do it. Um, I, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go ahead and do this. It was really bizarre, uh, but go ahead, you know, like don't do it because it's bizarre, but go ahead because I did it. Look how great I am. So uh, now don't do what I did, but here, I'll tell you what I did just in case you want to just try it out one time, you know, or, or at least display how spiritual I am, um, by not taking notes into a sermon. He, so he, he wouldn't take notes into a sermon. He said, actually the Lord prohibited him from taking notes into a sermon. Why would the Lord prohibit him from taking notes into a sermon? That's a quote. He prohibited him from taking notes in this. So again, he says, don't do what I did, but here's what I did. <laughs> I just listened to the father. He said, I listened to the father. The whole sermon was him listening to the father. Uh, I, I don't take notes because the father has prohibited me from taking notes. I... So are other preachers who consistently rely on notes uh, of what they've studied through the week or studied through their study of scripture? Are they doing things wrong? Um, are they not preaching to faith? This is again double speak. Um, you know, he, he sort of does this type of thing, like, um, "Don't do what I do, but but do what I do." Um, I really, I was more spiritual because I listened to the Father, and I just left my notes to the side. Um, they want to, they want people to listen to God and listen off the script or off the map. They don't want people to study the scriptures. They don't want people using their Bibles. They don't want people checking their Bibles because they might check and see like, wait a minute, that doesn't teach that. Um, so uh, they don't want people using scripture to preach from. They don't want people to take notes, do, doing diligent Bible study through the week to present a sermon of what the scripture says. They want them to listen to the Father. Put those things aside. Put your exegesis and your hermeneutics aside and listen to what the Father is saying. If he's quiet, don't say anything. If he's saying something, then say something. Listen to the Father. This is, again, this theology. God speaks now. He speaks personally to me only, and he gives me a message that stands outside of Scripture. This, this undermines the sufficiency of Scripture. What, does, what that theology teaches is that the Scriptures are sufficient. There's enough we have everything we need in the scriptures for life and godliness. We don't need more. 
But this is actually teaching. We need more. We need someone. We need the Father speaking now directly to me a new message that is not in Scripture. Um, so this uh, opposes or undermines at least the sufficiency of Scripture. Um, so they don't teach or believe sola scriptura or the sufficiency of Scripture, that Scripture alone is enough. They need, th- at least, at the very least, they teach uh, Scripture plus, you know, but it's actually becoming more the other way around. Um, the You know, hearing the Father... And maybe, yeah, if you need to study the Bible too, if you're weak enough, um, if you're so weak that you need the Bible, then go ahead and do that. But they're teaching them, actively teaching them at Bethel and through the New Apostolic Reformation to listen to the Father, to hear what he's saying, and to act on the things that they, their own imaginations are hearing. Uh, The sufficiency of Scripture is thrown out the window. Um, the sufficiency of Scripture teaches that the Scriptures are enough. They're sufficient. Not only are they uh, enough, they're sufficient to understand everything. On top of the theological perspective, uh, the sufficiency of Scripture stands an idea called the perspicuity of Scripture, which means that the Scriptures are clear. They're, they're capable of being clear enough for us to understand everything we need Uh, that God wants to communicate. Uh, They're sufficient for us to know everything that needs to be known about God. They stand alone as the authority of what God has made known about himself, what he said, and what he wanted to communicate to man. So when you promote and teach listening to what the Father's saying or this sort of this main thrust of their preaching and ministry is, I'm just listening to God, and I'm just going to kind of just assume, I'm just a conduit then you stepped outside of sola scriptura and the sufficiency of scripture. And they do it all the time. Johnson then goes on to describe that he doesn't get right all the time what the father's saying. The challenge I have here is uh, with contradictions. Johnson said he listens to the father and everything the father is saying, he says. And if the father's not saying something, then he doesn't say anything. Well, was God speaking? Or was he not speaking? So he says, I don't get it right all the time what the father, what, what you know, he doesn't get it right all the time what the father's saying. So wait a minute. Does he say what the father's saying? Or how could he not get it right? If he's just saying what the father's saying, how could he get that wrong? Right? So um, this is also contradictory. He doesn't stand up under his own arguments. If he's only saying what the father says, then how would he get that wrong? Or is it his own imaginations? Or is it not the Father speaking? So if he only says what the Father's saying, then why, how could he get it wrong? Um, well, was God speaking or wasn't he? Johnson actually admits that he's not infallible. He actually admits that he makes mistakes. So if he's always listening to what the Father is saying, when did the Father speak or not? Which one is... The correct one. So like if he says, I, don't, I make mistakes and I don't always get it right. So which, how do we know which one was actually right and which one was the father? It's, it's so subjective. And you're always just like, he actually admits it here and says, um, I don't get it right. So how do you know? How do the people who listen to him know if, the, if he got it right? If what the father's 
said is what he says the father said is what the father said. Um, if the, if the father spoke in error, then, then here's another thing. Here's another argument. If the father spoke to him and he says, the father said something to him, um, and he spoke in error, then he, God is fallible. Uh, then we got a problem. Um, because God doesn't speak fallibly. He doesn't speak in error. He doesn't speak out of turn. (laughs) If God says it, it is true and correct. But this is actually the point. If God, if he says God spoke and he, and it wasn't correct, then he has not heard from God. Either God speaks or he doesn't. If God speaks, it is inerrant and infallible. And if Johnson has spoken presumptuously, and then he's not listening to God. And God did not speak to him. If there's error or fallibility in what he says, then he when, that he heard from the Father, then Johnson has not heard from God. It is not God talking to him if he errs. God errs not. If Bill speaks something from God that he says God told him, and it either does not come to pass or is an error, as he would say, then he's a false prophet. Period. End of story. God does not speak fallibly. He only ever speaks inerrantly and infallibly. So this is at least contradictory. If he listens to the Father only, then he would only speak inerrantly. But he admits here in this section, in this video, that he gets it wrong sometimes. So Bill went on uh, then to say, quote, It's always going to be my best attempt, and it's always going to be flawed. Wow. But the problem with that is that he said he's listening to God. If God has spoken, then it cannot be flawed. If he's only listening to the Father and God has spoken to him, it's never flawed. If he admits he's flawed in communicating what God has said to him, then he's a false prophet because God doesn't speak through people in a flawed manner. He doesn't. So Johnson then continues, um, it's my best effort to listen to God and to hear what he's saying and to say what he's saying. But if God has spoken it, then it's not fallible. I'm sorry to belabor this point, but he keeps going on in this in this video. God makes no mistakes. He doesn't lie. He doesn't speak in error. And when Bill Johnson claims that he's trying to speak for the Father, then it should be, it ought to be completely infallible. If it is in fact, if it is fallible, then Johnson has not heard from God. At the 33-minute mark... Bill Johnson says that he, as an apostle, is subject to other apostles, and he has other people in his life that can correct him. I find that very, very hard to believe. So uh, again, I bring in the book, When Heaven Invades Earth, uh, to show that he is 
not open to critique, not open to critique, especially of those who would uh, critique or have uh, critics of the revival, he says. So let me read this quote to you. It's on page 116 of When Heaven Invades Earth, showing that he's not open to any outside critique. For me to consider the criticism of this revival would be the same as giving audience to someone trying to prove I should have married another woman. First of all, I love my wife and have no interest in anyone else. Second, I refuse to entertain the thoughts of any person who desires to undermine my love for her. Only those who will add to my commitment to her are allowed such an audience with me. So I take it other apostles, other prophets in this movement are only allowed audience with him. Anything less would be foolishness on my part. And here he talks about it specifically. The critics of this revival from Toronto is the context. From Toronto on, this revival he calls a revival, are unknowingly attempting to separate me from my first love. I will not give them place. I have many friends who are able to read the books of the critics with no ill effect. I respect them for their ability to stick their hands in the mire without getting their hearts dirty. So basically the critics critique, the, the contents of their critique is dung. Meyer is dung. It's poo. It's cow poo. Um, <laughs> hardly any other way to put that. So all those who have critique out there, biblical critique, you're using dung or your critique is dung. And he doesn't want to get his hands dirty. I don't care to do it. I'm just, it's just not my gift. Learn how to function best than function. Well, I have no time for critics, but I do welcome the wounds of a friend. The corrections offered through meaningful relationship keep us from deception. So he doesn't allow critique in from anywhere. Um, who would Anyone who would critique the revival movement um, from Toronto on is the context in that section. So it shows he's not really open to critique. He does say in this section then at the 33-minute mark that... He is, he does let people in. I find it very, very hard to believe he lets anybody in outside of the NAR movement, outside of those who would be called apostles and prophets, anyone who belongs to this movement. He does probably let people correct him, I guess, um, who are in the movement, but he's not letting anybody correct him outside the movement. Um, and that's why they interviewed each other. That's why Dan Farrelly, his pastor, interviewed. Him, him. So it's funny. There's some memes maybe floating around. Uh, Bethel interviewing Bethel about Bethel. Uh, so there's, he's not going to let allow any critique anybody to interview him who would uh, question him in any other way. Um, you know, than Dan Fairley throwing softballs at him uh, for about an hour and a half. So he communicated in this book, um, and. Uh, he probably only has other people in this apostolic network that are confirming and saying he's the best thing since sliced bread. They don't ever critique each other inside this movement. Nobody, even Dr. Michael Brown, who might possibly critique him in the movement, has had him on this, his show, the In the Line of Fire, to hold his hand and affirm him in what he's doing. Michael Brown coddled and coached him to say Johnson doesn't mean the things he says and help basically excuse him for his aberrant type teaching. So even the people within the movement, like Dr. Michael Brown, don't critique him, don't actually, they, they hold his hand and coddle um, to, you know, make sure he uh, looks uh, like he's uh, getting away with it and, and you know, looks like he's... Uh, 
even criti critics like Michael Brown, even critics like Dr. Michael Brown, who could possibly theologically critique him, uh, he doesn't let them critique him. Or Michael Brown will hold his hand and coddle him on the show and, and make him make it look like everything at Bethel is peachy keen. Um, so they don't actually, they don't critique each other. No one in the movement critiques each other. No one says, hey, what you're saying there is not biblical. Even calling him out in his book in 2003 for saying um, that Jesus laid aside his divinity. You, did you hear anybody in the movement say that that was maybe incorrect, Bill, and maybe we should uh, rewrite that? No. It's been 20 years published. 20 years. Nobody's going to call him out. So people in this movement never actually hold someone down to the carpet and really hold them to account for their false teachings. The apostles in this movement only hold each other's hand and pat each other on the back. You can see it when they invite each other to their, each other's churches, you know. So-and-so is this, that they, they, they just steward the presence of God so well, and they have each other on each other's shows, and uh, Che An has his show, and, you know, um, uh, who is it? Sid Roth. Uh, it's Supernatural. All these guys show up on Sid Roth's show, and, and Sid Roth just says, I, you just, you foster the presence so great. I just see anointing on you, and blah, blah, blah. They don't ever hold each other to account. So Dan and Bill then move on into the section quickly after basically saying we don't abuse apostolic authority into the section of theology of sickness. Um, they don't, it's really funny that actually, they don't really actually give much time to the theme apostolic authority, um, which is funny because that's the, that's the main critic of this movement. Uh, we just create a culture of honor. They say, quote unquote, we create a culture of honor. We're just honoring each other. And we really allow people to speak into our lives. They basically communicate. Then there's a lot of people who speak into my life. I don't believe it. I just don't believe it. When I wrote my book, divergent theology, I reached out to, uh, to them, even though I didn't need to, because public teaching should be able to be publicly critiqued. So he's written books and I've critiqued those books in my book. And I reached out to them and he, and they basically said after a few uh, correspondence back and forth, I sent the te the, the quotes that I uh, was interested in him responding to seeing if we could talk and if we could understand. And they basically said he, he's not interested. And uh, so, uh, yeah, so that that's it. He, he confirmed what he says in his books. He's not interested in critique. He's not interested in uh, talking with people who are who who are going to critique the 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 revival. So this whole series, actually, rediscovering Bethel um, series uh, podcast series they did shows that they don't let anybody outside outside their own circle into their lives. Why would Dan Farrelly, the pastor and the director of Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, interview Bill Johnson? He's internal. He's a Bethel staff person. He's the director of the school and now the pastor. Why not let someone else outside the movement who has a real honest critique interview him? This is Bethel interviewing Bethel about Bethel, saying we're not really as bad as we are. No, of course not. This is all PR. It's all a stunt. It's not an honest critique or an honest look at their theology. This shows they don't really hold each other to the carpet. They don't hold each other under the microscope. Basically, Dan Fairley says the whole time, you don't really mean that, did you? 
and kind of laughs it off, you know? He laughs like all the time in this interview. It's so interesting. Every time he asks him kind of a tough question, if it was tough at all, maybe, you don't really mean that, do you? Ha ha ha, you know? Um, and just sort of laughs. So they move on to the theology of sickness, uh, where Johnson is quoted as saying, I refuse to create a theology that allows for sickness. Um, so he starts off by saying what he's not saying. Um, and he does admit, what I'm not saying is that if you're sick, you have a sin in your life or you have no faith. Uh, I never would make a statement like that, he says, to pin somebody, to confront somebody or to expose them or shame them in any way. Um, he wouldn't do that. What he does say is he says, uh, it's a personal statement. I, I'm not going to allow sickness to be um, something from the Lord or, or a suffering that the Lord is allowing. I'm not going to deify sickness is what he says. I'm not going to sanctify sickness, giving it a divine role. Uh, God can use anything in the kingdom, but he doesn't mean to design or sanctify sickness in that sense. Uh, Johnson denies here that God gave sickness to me to help me learn or, or, or suffering or, or whatever. This whole section sort of overlooks the sovereignty of God in all things. Uh, again, Bill Johnson doesn't believe that God purposefully allows bad stuff. He believes that, that God is sovereign, he says, but he's not in control. So he's Lord of the house, um, as he uses this illustration, like a parent, uh, but he's not in control of every detail of the house. God can't control everything that happens inside of his house, i.e. sickness. Basically, Bill uh, Johnson, with that is saying, he doesn't want to deify sickness. He doesn't want to put it on a pedestal as if God were doing something purposeful through sickness, as if uh, God were disciplining us or correcting us or even refining us as gold is refined through the fire. So Dan Fairley then tries to summarize Johnson's position, and he says, if we make sickness and suffering a virtue, then we sort of put a stamp of approval on it from God. And that's a dangerous place to be, he says. So <laughs> not only are, are they condemning people who've gone through trials and suffering and are still chronically ill or disabled or whatever, they condemn people by saying that they're unvirtuous. So uh, it, it's not as if um, there's some kind of suffering that, that God has allowed and established like in first, I think of First Peter five ten, it says this, and and after we have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. So they can't even imagine that God would allow suffering, uh, pain, any kind of goodness discomfort. You know, um, so those who are chronically ill or disabled or whatever um, they might have don't fit. You know, they're unvirtuous, not only unvirtuous, God's not allowing your suffering as Peter describes. Funny enough, this is, they don't, they, I had never heard any of these guys quote this type of, these type of verses after you have suffered a little while, <laughs> that's what it says. The God of all grace who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore you, strengthen, and establish you. He's doing something. He's doing something you can't imagine or see. On top of the 1 Peter 5, 10 passage, uh, I think of uh, 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, through the end of the chapter, uh, for, through 18. It says this, So we do not lose heart, though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light and momentary affliction is producing in us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are seen are unseen are eternal. For this light and momentary affliction is producing for us an eternal weight of glory. Not only is your affliction momentary, not only is it light, but it's producing for you an eternal weight of glory. It's producing for you a glory that you would not have had had you not gone through that suffering, whatever it may be. So suffering, pain, anything like that hardly exists in this theology. It can exist. God cannot have been the sovereign mover in your suffering to them. Uh, Bill does say you can go through suffering with virtue, but when we embrace suffering as a virtue... That invites all sorts of brokenness and stamps the approval of God on it. And it's really a dangerous place to be, he said. So basically, uh, they communicate that suffering is not virtuous, it's not God's will, and it's a dangerous place to be, actually. So if, you, if you're suffering, those of you who are suffering, I, I honestly can hardly understand how people who are disabled, who are suffering, and who, who do have long-term chronic illnesses can actually ever just be regular attenders at this church. I'll be honest. Because you are, <laughs> you're looked at with condemnation, with you're unvirtuous. God is not doing this to you. Why don't you just step forward and stop suffering? I mean, sometimes I wonder, like, how in the world could someone be a long-term part of this church or these movements, the NAR, the New Apostolic Reformation, and be chronically ill or disabled or have anything um, that is a suffering in any way? Um, because it, they're, they're saying it's dangerous for you to stay in that place of suffering. It's, it's dangerous for you to actually say suffering is from God's hand, from God's good and gracious hand, um, because, because you're making it virtuous. Oh boy. It's really hard to believe. Um, and this contradicts and counteracts the teaching of the church for two, the last 2,000 years, that God allows and gives suffering. Even the apostles suffered. All 12 of them suffered and died martyrdom, suffered greatly at the hands of their persecutors. Were they on dangerous ground? When they rejoiced? When they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus? You think of the first uh, uh, Peter, James, and John. They came out of the Sanhedrin. They were flogged suffering, and they were sent out of the Sanhedrin, and they rejoiced that they were found worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus. Were they on dangerous ground? Were they creating a virtuous type of suffering? Of course they were. They are models for us to be looked after. The scripture talks about suffering throughout and how we're to handle it under the gracious hand of God, humbling ourselves, as 1 Peter 5 says, and other passages here, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18. I would, uh, I would encourage you to have a look at those passages and let them 
minister to your heart that God is doing something great through your suffering. And at his good and gracious hand, he's allowing you to go through it for some divine, wonderful purpose, which we might even not, not even know in this life, but in the life to come, we will receive an eternal weight of glory. It says it right there in 2 Corinthians uh, 7, uh, verse, chapter 4, verse 17. Then Dan Farrelly goes on to talk about how Paul came to one community in weakness and they didn't reject him for his weaknesses. Um, but this is interesting. This is not accurate as well. They don't understand the scriptures here. Paul describes not just a weakness, but a sickness. So it's interesting. It, um, they don't understand what, what, what happened with that section in, in Galatians. Paul explains that the gospel of Christ was preached to them in Galatia because of his disability his sickness, um, and it was probably blindness or, or some eye problem. In Galatians 4, verse 13 to 15, it says, uh, you know it was because of a bodily ailment, not a weakness, that I preached the gospel to you at first. So they changed stuff up. So fairly, I don't know if he did it on purpose, but it's changed. He changed it. It's not, it was not a weakness. It was a bodily ailment that I preached the gospel to you at first. And though my condition was a trial to you, you did not scorn or despise me, but you received me as an angel of God, as Christ Jesus. What then has become of your blessedness? For I testify to you that if possible, you would have gouged out your eyes and given them to me. Now, why would they have gouged out their eyes and given them to him? Probably because his eyes were bad in some way. So it was a bodily ailment. And he preached the gospel to them because of that bodily ailment. Now, we don't know the exact details of why or what, what it was, or surrounding those circumstances, but they would have, he said, they, I testify that I know you would have gouged out your own eyes and given them to me if you could have, right? So it was an eye disease of some type. Almost all commentators believe that Paul had some type of ailment in his eyes, that I was a blindness of some type, probably to do with him having the scales on his eyes when he um, uh, met Jesus um, and uh, he was blinded. Uh, again, many scholars believe that this uh, infirmity of some type, this ailment, was blindness or some kind of problem with his eyesight, as indicated that the Galatian people would have gouged their own eyes out to give them to him. Uh, so that was the topic of discussion here. So Paul, an apostle of Jesus Christ, lived with some kind of infirmity, which uh, is actually enabled him to preach the gospel to many people. So this stands in direct opposition to their theological position, that suffering and uh, sickness and illness cannot advance the gospel. Now, that's funny. Um, never thought about that till just now. Ding! This was a freebie. Paul and him preaching the gospel uh, through... Uh, through his infirmity, because of his infirmity, he was enabled to preach the gospel to the Galatian believers. That stands in direct opposition to this theology of healing. Um, in their theology of healing, it, during his presentation of the gospel, Paul should have been healed because Bill Johnson teaches actually, again, in the book, the, When Heaven Invades Earth, uh, on page 126, he says, without miracles, there can never be a full revelation of Jesus. And then on 127, he says, miracles provide the grace for repentance. 
And it also he also says, it wasn't a complete message without a demonstration of the power of God. It's how God says amen to his declared word. So Paul didn't experience a miracle while he was preaching. So how could there have been a complete revelation of Jesus? The gospel for them is incomplete without a, a sign of power or, a, or some kind of miracle, some kind of miraculous event. But Paul says that he preached the gospel to the Galatian believers, not just despite his infirmity, but because of his infirmity, because of his eyesight somehow, that they would have given him his, their, their eyeballs, they could have. Because of that infirmity, the gospel was preached. Ooh, uh, that uh, go, flies in the face of this healing theology and especially flies in the face of what they're saying right here. Uh, like I said, uh, Dan Farrelly says that there was some, uh, he calls it a weakness, but, it, but Paul does not call it a weakness. He calls it an ailment, a bodily ailment. It's very clear there was some kind of problem in his body um, that allowed him that enabled him to preach the gospel through his condition, he said. So uh, they're wrong. So not only are they wrong on the weakness thing, but they're wrong on the theology, and that this story with Paul shows that their theology, that miracles have to be part of the gospel presentation, is totally false. As a matter of fact, it's the opposite. <laughs> the weakness and the infirmity showed the truth of the power of the gospel that through his weakness, God's power was displayed. Um, so that was kind of Paul's mantra throughout, you know, my grace is sufficient for you for my power is made perfect in your weakness. So Paul's mantra is, look, I'm a weak vessel. I didn't come to you with eloquence and whatever. I came to you in weakness. And that is the true power of the gospel. The true power of Christ is that through our weakness, through our infirmities, through all of our pain and suffering and trials, he is strong. The power of the gospel is Jesus himself and his ability to forgive sin, to remove guilt, to give us eternal life. The true power of the gospel is his power, not ours, not miracles, not some kind of experience that, you know, maybe someone's healed, maybe this, that, or the other thing. The power of the gospel is the message itself. Paul preached it in Romans 1.16. He said, for I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for those who believe. So the power is the message itself. So then uh, Bill Johnson talks about uh, Epaphroditus in Philippians 2. Johnson said that uh, Paul's only target was the health of his friend. This passage in, in Philippians 2 never says that. Paul was praying for him, of course, but the only target was the gospel. His friend's health was, of course, a worry to him, but Paul didn't say my only target was Epaphroditus's health. He actually says the opposite. He says that the goal was to send him to you for your encouragement in the gospel. And the Lord had mercy, and we're grateful for that. But Paul did not say the only target, quote-unquote, the only target was the health of Epaphroditus. 
Look at the passage and see if you can find anything like this. Let's have a look. So uh, Bill Johnson talks about it in, a few, in Philippians 2, uh, Epaphroditus, and let's have a look and see what Paul actually said. In Philippians 2, verse 19 and on, uh, Paul writes, I hope in the Lord to, uh, Jesus to send Timothy to you soon so that I may be cheered by the news of you, for I have no one like him who will genuinely be concerned for your welfare, for they all seek their own interests, not those of Jesus Christ. But you know Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with his father he had served with me in the gospel. I hope, therefore, to send him just as soon as I see how it will go with me. And I trust in the Lord that shortly I myself will come too. Then here he goes. I have thought it necessary to send to you Epaphroditus, my brother and fellow worker and fellow soldier and your messenger and ministry to my need. And your messenger and minister to my need. Okay. It says in verse 26, then for he has been longing for you and all has all and has been distressed because he heard you heard that he was ill. Indeed, he was ill near to death, but God had mercy on him, and not only on him, but on me also, lest I should have sorrow upon sorrow, meaning if he had passed away, he would have been sorrowful. I am the more eager to send him, therefore, that you may rejoice at seeing him again, and that I may be less anxious. So receive him in the Lord with all joy, and honor such men, for he nearly died for the work of Christ, risking his life to complete what was lacking in your service to me. It's pretty clear that was not his main thrust. He wanted to send Epaphroditus to him. He was worried about him, certainly. But Paul did not say, my only target was Epaphroditus's health. Bill Johnson, of course, he if, if anybody's sick in the Bible or anybody has some kind of ailment or something, he's going to turn it and twist it to his ends. That's a clear twisting of that scripture. Uh, he, Epaphroditus was ill, near to death. Paul would have been worried. He was worried. He certainly was worried. And he would have had sorrow upon sorrow if he had, if he had passed away. But the Lord had mercy on him, and we're grateful for that. Paul didn't say the only target of, his, uh, of, his, of Paul's was Epaphroditus' health. So... Um, that's a twisting of that scripture as well. Bill begins to talk about how healing is a relational journey. Johnson says that Jesus didn't heal everyone. He admits that, at least, but he healed those who were in relationship with him. So which is it? Uh, did Jesus heal everyone all the time, only always, as Johnson has taught in the previous episode? Um, or which one is it? Does Jesus heal indiscriminately, or does he heal only in relationship? If that's the case, then this is even more of a shaky theology. And in their, in their movement, they don't just heal or try to heal people who are in relationship with Jesus. That's funny because they'll go on the street. I mean, Todd White is super well-known for just flying out on the street and lengthening people's legs and stuff like that. And then he says, God loves you and just walks away from them. Those people aren't in relationship with Jesus. Like, thanks for healing my leg, I guess. Uh, cool, Jesus loves you. They're not in relationship with Jesus. So this doesn't even, this is not even consi a consistent thing for them. If this is the case, then this is even more of a shaky theology because people who are relationally saved, relationally Christians, and relationally have faith in Christ aren't healed. Johnny Erickson Tata. I know many people 
in the Christian faith community living with lifelong disabilities and aren't healed. Um, what's their status? Why aren't they healed? Why aren't people with long-time disabilities, chronic illnesses, et cetera, et cetera, why aren't they healed? It's contradictory in every way. If we're healed in relationship, if it's a relational thing, then people who are in relationship with Jesus should just be healed, right? Um, it's contradictory. It's just contradictory. And it's contradictory because they don't heal people who are in relationship with like I said, they go out on the street or people come into Bethel and they're coming for healing. They want healing, you know, for whatever they have. And they're not Christians, obviously not Christians. They've not given their life to Jesus in faith. They just approach people on the street, BSSM, Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry students. They go out on the street doing treasure hunts and looking for people with blue shirts and crutches or whatever, right? They, whatever the impression they get in their mind, they're going out there looking for it. And they just heal them. And then they walk away. No gospel presentation. and Because for them, actually, it's that is the gospel. Their healing is the gospel. And uh, we're starting to see that more and more. That those, they don't preach the gospel. They don't teach people who are healed, if they're healed, that Jesus is, is the way, the truth, and the life, and that they should repent from their sins and turn to faith in Jesus Christ. They don't teach that. Uh, but so we're seeing more and more that their belief that healing is the gospel. That is the gospel. The next topic that uh, Johnson and Fairley deal with is the cross and uh, what it entails. But again, Fairley says there's only misinformation out there about Bethel or wrong information, and people are other people are just wrong. They have us all. They've got us all wrong. They've pegged us wrong. Um, and then Dan won't clarify what the misinformation is that's out there. Um, but we don't have misinformation. Critics of this movement don't have misinformation. We have their books. <laughs> got them down here. Got to grab another one. Supernatural Power of a Transformed Mind. We've got their sermons. Uh, we have their teaching. We have thousands and thousands of hours of them teaching a false gospel of the cross. We have Beth Bethel's thousands of books and materials they put out. It's all out there. It's all in public. It's not like we're, we, you know, we're taking things out of context or, or getting misinformation or quoting them wrong. That's as well gaslighting, big time gaslighting. We, we've got their materials. We're reading the stuff. We're reading it. I mean, I'm not, I'm not creating his quotes out of thin air. I'm not putting words in his mouth. I'm looking at his sermons. They've got thousands and thousands of materials. You know, Bethel TV, they have a website where you can go get all their sermons. I mean, I'm not making stuff up. We're not making stuff up. We've got thousands of hours of them teaching a false gospel of the cross. We can watch it on Bethel TV. Bill Johnson's written some 30 or 40 books. It's all out there for people to see. So what's the incorrect misinformation? He just says, you can't just say that and say those, you know, so this is also gaslighting and, an, and a straw man argument, an ad hominem argument. Those guys over there, those critics, they're incorrect and they have the wrong misinformation, but they just say that you just say that and um, you can't, you got to back it up somehow. What's the misinformation? What are we quoting wrongly? What, what is, the, what's out there that's misinformation? 
There's nothing out there that's misinformation. It's all public. You can go to their websites. You can read their books. It's all there. Either their materials are correct as they've written them or they're incorrect. So the misinformation is coming from them, actually. Either they have correctly described the cross and what it entails, or they've incorrectly described it. They've done it. They, they, we didn't put the words in their mouth. Johnson's books um, have been out for 20 years. He's got some 30 or 40 books, just re recently released a book, um, and he's got thousands of hours of sermon material out there. Either they produce the misinformation themselves or it's correct and they stand by it, what they've said. Which one is it? Where's the misinformation coming from? What misinformation? You got to say it. You can't just throw that thing out, that bomb out there in the, in the ether and, and not back it up. So they don't back their stuff up. They don't say what misinformation is, what, what's out there. Um, they just claim it. But the, the information is coming from them. They're producing the misinformation about the cross. So I give Bill credit here. Um, they further explain that we need the cross, okay? There's no other way. But he doesn't explain what the cross is, except that he explains that Jesus is the spotless Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That is correct. But how? What is the cross? What does it entail? He leaves out quite a bit here. It's basically just saying something that we need to be ha have to be saved. Um, uh, to be a Christian, we need the cross. It's central. Uh, he does say it's central. I'll give him credit for that. Um, but what does it entail? Um, is it an example for us? Um, is the cross merely an expression of God's love? Is it, is does he does Jesus? Um, substitute himself as an atoning sacrifice in our place? What's atonement? What does a vicarious atonement mean? And, and does he believe it? Uh, it doesn't seem like he's expressed it really well, very clearly here. So you can look at it for yourself and see what you think. Uh, it's around the 42 minute mark where he starts speaking about how the cross delivers us from sin and the effects of torment. So again, there's the healing theology, you're, you're delivered from torment, from evil spirits, from, from the spirit of infirmity, um, from uh, sickness, um, po poverty. Poverty is part of the uh, work of Jesus on the cross. So um, it delivers us from torment. Um, he said Jesus' atoning blood was, uh, has covered me and covered all my sins. So it seems like he could, ex could express it if he wanted to. But the cross is woefully absent in their preaching and their teaching at Bethel. In their books, the cross is not the center point of their ministry. Uh, Pentecost is. And uh, so uh, he said at the 45-minute mark that they sing uh, about the cross in their songs. Um, they sing the self-giving love. They proclaim it over themselves. And again, this is part of the objection. Uh, are we meant to proclaim the self-giving love of Jesus over ourselves? Are we meant to proclaim those things? Or does God proclaim them? And does God speak them? And we are meant to worship him in our worship. Our worship is giving God worth, not giving ourselves worth, which this movement is guilty of consistently. They say, we proclaim this, we proclaim that, we declare this, we declare that. You don't declare anything. You don't proclaim anything. 
God does it. God proclaims and declares that you are made righteous by faith in Jesus Christ, and we worship him for that proclamation and for that position. Um, we worship him. We don't worship ourselves. We don't proclaim. We don't declare. We worship. We humbly receive by faith the gift of salvation in Christ Jesus. Fairly then talks about uh, the relation to the cross and how they present the cross. He says they try to present um, that people are new, um, th that you have a new identity, <clears throat> that you're new creations. One of the main objections to how they present stuff and how they do stuff at Bethel is that they present it like everyone is in Christ. You just have to embrace your identity uh, that you already are in Christ, sort of skipping the step of regeneration. Um, that's the main objection that I've seen every time I watch a Bethel sermon. They present everything as if it's already done, as if everyone is already in Christ. You have to sort of embrace, just embrace your new identity. That's my main problem. Uh your problem, the problem for, for most people is that we're not saved. People who, who, you know, attend Bethel, you can't assume that everyone who comes to Bethel are, is saved. Um, it's not that you're embracing your identity, uh, your true identity as a new creation, if you're not a new creation. <laughs> um, and that's where I think they actually slide a little bit into Pelagianism or even universalism, that everyone's saved, and you just have to embrace the identity that you already are saved. And um, they don't represent the gospel, the true gospel, that everyone has to be born again. Um, they assume that everyone's a new creation first. Um, <clears throat> you have to be regenerated. You have to be uh, saved. You have to be uh, born again. You must be born again. You must call people to repentance and faith in the cross and the work of Christ on the cross in our place. Instead, Bethel teaches consistently identity more than repentance and faith. They teach that people only need to just, embr just embrace your identity as a, as a born-again person. Embrace your identity as a new creation. But not everyone is a new creation. Not everyone is a child of God. Uh, we are all born... Uh, as children of God in the sense that he, we are image bearers of God, but not everyone is a new creation. So even that passage, the new creation passage that we all probably are familiar with, 2 Corinthians 5, 16 and on, um, I'm just going to quote 17 here. Uh, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. So, First of all, if, if any man is in Christ, he's a new creation. You have to be in Christ. If you are in Christ, if you're not in Christ, you are not a new creation. <laughs> if you are in Christ, you are a new creation. And the old has passed away. What is the old? The old nature. We are a new creation in Christ. There is an old nature. There is an old creation that is the sin man, that is the, the body of death, as Paul talks about in Romans 7. There is that old man. 
But if any man is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. You can't be a new creation without being in Christ, being saved, being regenerated. Jesus has to do that work. God has to do that work through the power of the Holy Spirit, through faith and repentance in Christ. You're not automatically a new creation. And those who watch, and if you're not a new creation today, if you have not given your life to Christ in faith, repented from your sins, turned to Christ, then do that today. What are you waiting for? Right? Behold, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. You can be new. You can be regenerate. The old sinful life can be gone. <laughs> the new can come. But that doesn't happen automatically. And Bethel, the challenge for me with Bethel is that they uh, act as if that new creation is already there. They act as if everyone is a, a new creation, and that's not true. The challenging tension that I see at Bethel and how they, do, how they present things is that people don't actually get saved. People aren't actually new creations in Christ. The old is still there. They're just saying you have to embrace your identity, but you're not a new creation. You haven't turned your life over to faith, to Christ by faith um, because they don't hear the gospel consistently. They push them and encourage them just to understand and believe that they're in Christ, even though people are probably not new creations. They're probably not saved. At this point in the um, in the in the show, my son, funny enough, he was kind of listening in, made the comment that Johnson and Farrelly have Bibles in front of them, but they're not using them. <laughs> it's funny, and actually, they did. They had, both of them had a big, you know, Johnson has a big, big, heavy Bible, um, and they hadn't opened them once up to this point. It's very interesting. They uh, either actually misuse the Bible, but mostly they don't even use it at all. Um, if they do quote the Bible, they misquote it or falsely understand it. Uh, and as I've shown, they don't use their Bibles at all. The big Bible of Johnson is just sitting there on the table. He actually has not read from it. He hasn't opened it. It's just sitting there. It's like a prop in a play, you know? Um, you got big, th in, a, in plays, you have to have these big items that are on the stage to be able to be seen from far away. So they have these things up there like props in a play. The whole two episodes up to this point, sitting there, it's a big Bible, and he hasn't even opened it. My son said uh, they have them there just for show, and uh, it's probably not too far from the truth. Um, I've noticed that they use uh, the NAR terms manifest and breakthrough and impartation um, quite a bit in this episode. Uh, they're not a biblical terms. Manifestation, breakthrough, and impartation are not... Um, biblical terms. And actually, the Passion Translation inserts those terms quite a bit into its translation. I talked about the Passion Translation in episode one. Go back and have a look at that if you want to, if you can have time. They're terms that they've used uh, to show how they imagine the Spirit works, and making a breakthrough is going to uh, impart this and that and give us these manifestations or this or that. And this is how they live in this supernatural thing. Uh, it's just not biblical uh, life of how Christian Christians should should operate or Christian life operates. Um, so those words are constructs. They're they're um, they're made up, right? Dan Fairley has made the comment that at, at the Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry, they don't focus on salvation. 
people have put their applications in and they they assume that they're Christians and and now I don't get their application process and I don't know their line of questioning but um, a new podcast called Heaven Bent um, you might want to check that out interviews people uh, that have come from Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry who obviously were not saved and obviously have abandoned the faith. It's very interesting. Um, And those who are still there, are still sympathetic to Bethel, um, have no idea how to articulate the simplest of Christian doctrines or principles. People in that, it's really interesting. It was a worthwhile listen for sure, but it's called Heaven Bent. And the people who are sympathetic to Bethel, who are part of Bethel still... um, they have they cannot articulate the Christian faith um, and what it means to be saved. If they are saved or were saved, the question is, do people go to that school who are genuine Christians? I, I didn't I in that episode and people I've seen who've come from Bethel and and who are at Bethel currently and and students who they can't they can't articulate the gospel. Now I have met people. I will give them that. Met people who have come from Bethel and can articulate the gospel. So there, there are people. But you, I don't think you can assume that if you're a student at Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry that you're a Christian. Um, especially hearing that that episode, those those podcast series called Heaven Bent, they must have interviewed 25, 30 students, uh, former students and current students at Bethel. And not a one of them could really articulate the gospel. It's really, really blew my mind. So it's worth a listen. Uh, My conclusion is over the years I've seen uh, is that for the most part, often people go uh, there to Bethel School of Supernatural Ministry who are not genuine Christians. They just want an experience. They've grown up in the church maybe. Um, And uh, these people by and large cannot express a basic gospel understanding and are often not genuine Christians and just want to go to BSSM to have an experience. That's my uh, view of, of, through my experience, through, I have lots of touch with people who have gone there, come back, uh, spend time there. I know, I know a, a half a dozen people there right now. Um, and that's what I've seen in my uh, uh, experience with people who have attended BSSM over the years. Um, and I've been observing uh, them the last 15 years or so. And my experience is that uh, people who go there who cannot express the gospel, they um, come back and they, you know, they just have had this experience. So Dan Fairley says that people uh, who come here are genuine Christians because they're putting aside sin and sacrifice something uh, extremely big sacrifice to be here. Um, sorry, Dan, I can't agree with that. They're not sacrificing anything to be there. <laughs> They're in the wealthiest country in the world. If people come internationally, which a lot do now to go to BSSM, they're living in California, in one of the nicest towns in the state, in the mountains, overlooking lakes and mountains. It's beautiful in Redding. Sorry. Not sacrificing anything. They may be sacrificing living wherever they're living, coming, putting their life on hold. But look, it's an incredible atmosphere. You're in California, in the mountains of California, two hours from San Francisco, 
They're not sacrificing anything to be there. It's a joy for them to be there, to take two years out of their life to spend in California, sunny California. Weather is never bad. I mean, come on. That's, <laughs> they're not sacrificing anything. Um, they have an affluent culture there. They're living in an affluent city. They may have to raise a few bucks to get there. Okay, I give them that. But they're usually wealthy kids from wealthy families, and their families pay for their time there. They're not sacrificing anything, honestly. Maybe there's a few who really are not as wealthy, and they need to raise money. I, I would admit that, right? But for the most part, <laughs> they're, not, they're not sacrificing, honestly. This is a joke. The school is for wealthy hipsters who can afford eight to ten thousand dollars a year in cash for no accreditation for nothing when they get home. They walk home with a piece of paper that's worthless. They have a certificate. There's no graduation. The graduation is them walking across the stage, getting handshakes from Bill Johnson. <laughs> they don't have an accredited degree afterwards. It's useless. There's no accreditation. These people are the wealthiest people. They're not sacrificing anything. Sorry, I can't agree. Maybe there are a few people per year who suffer and struggle and try to get the money together. And that's actually an abuse, in my opinion. Anyways, people come from all over the world and actually sacrifice and, and suffer and struggle and go into debt because they're trying to go to this school and they shouldn't because it's not accredited, it's not a school, it's a 10,000 year, flushing $10,000 a year down the toilet. <laughs> I mean, so, <laughs> that's sorry, they're not sacrificing anything. They go to Starbucks every day um, with their saggy beanies. I was there, I went to the, um, to the evening service on a Sunday and all the BSSM students are there, they're not suffering, they're not struggling. Maybe to pay the payments, there's a few people who need money, and the church comes through and pays for it. Sorry, that's my little rant about the, <laughs> the hipsters who are going to BSSM suffering for Jesus. <laughs> um, Dan Fairley then says that uh, daily they're singing the gospel over themselves. And one of the lines he mentions is, where we, quote, where we hear praises, you see faith. I thought wait a minute, is this a worship line? Or is this God who, is this singing that God looks down on us and says, wow, look at their faith? I mean, this is confusing. This line in this song, um, it's at best really awful theology. And at worst, you could deduce from this that we're the center of God's universe. You know, God's looking down or... I don't understand, you know, I don't understand the line, honestly. Where we hear praises, you see faith. So we're saying, you know, God, our praises are really valuable to you. Or It's really confusing. Um, one could deduce from this uh, line, <laughs> if this is their gospel line, you know, he actually says this is, we sing the gospel. We, um, we're singing the gospel every day. If this is their gospel, then we're the center of God's universe. I mean, we are really, really great, you know? God is so blessed to have us because when we sing praises, he sees faith. Whew. I mean, we are really, really 
really awesome people. I feel like Zoolander or something, <laughs> you know, really, really awesome. You know, we're, when, when we sing praises to God, he just really is blown away by us. What a nincompoop. Sorry for my language, but <laughs> what a nincompoop. He says that God is sitting up in heaven and looking at our worship and saying, wow, that's a lot of faith right there. Those people at Bethel, they've got a lot of faith. Wow, I am blown away by their faith. This is just laughable. God is not sitting up in heaven astounded by our faith. He's not sitting up in heaven saying, wow, it's a good thing I got them <laughs> or anything like that. This is ridiculous. It's a hoot. I'm actually... <laughs> God is astounded by our faith. It just wants, I just want to snicker, you know. <laughs> uh, what's funny about this, these guys really think that they impress God with their faith. They really believe that their church, Bethel, or any other people that sing their music maybe or are or, or singing this line, that they're really impressing God with their faith. It's just really funny. Okay. All right. Get yourself together, Richard. <laughs> so Bill Johnson says that next year they're going to change the things that they've been doing this year. So I guess the goalposts are always moving. It's uh, got to be so exhausting uh, to be in this movement, to be part of this church where you never know what's going to happen. Like you're going to have this thing happen this way, or, or is it going to be different? Um, are the goalposts going to change this next year coming up? What are we going to we're changing everything, I, I heard, you know. Where's the next thing changing? Um, it, it would be quite tiring always to to have to know what the next thing is or the next movement or the next move of God or you're always got to be on up with the next thing. Um, you always have to be lined up or in alignment with the next move of God. It's It's got to be truly, truly draining. I Just listening to him. Makes me tired, honestly, and 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 to think I have to. Okay, well, this year the next thing is what's the next thing happening now, and the next book, and the next conference, and the next outpouring, and the next revival, and and you have to sustain revival. Um, Got to be really exhausting. So Bill Johnson then moves on and says, "We're going to get some things really, really right, and we're going to get some things really, really wrong." And they're going to have to go back and clean up the mess. Um, I would just be curious as to what they got wrong. So he says, he admits there, that they've got some things wrong. What have they gotten wrong over the years? Um, because none of this whole Rediscovering Bethel podcast up to this point, this is two episodes in, has admitted failure or getting anything wrong. I mean, they've said they've gotten stuff wrong, but they didn't say what it was. Um, so... Yeah, what are those things? I mean, name them, you know. Can you name them? They did, he did talk about in this episode his wanting to uh, uh, rewrite his books or take those parts of his books out, but he didn't admit that was wrong. He just said they're going to take it out. So, um, yeah, that's not really something he's repenting for. He's just going to, you know, kind of quietly remove it. Uh, so I'd like to know kind of like to know, um, what they got wrong. Um, yeah, but they don't really say. 
So they just have to move the goalpost every year to plow forward in the movement to, to, you know, to get the next high, basically. So my son said at this point, he was still listening, and he said, he said, one thing that, that I, uh, they want to do, I think, I think they've changed everything about what the Bible has said <laughs> and all the stories in it. So I don't know. I think maybe I'm interested in what they want to change in the Bible. <laughs> it's really funny. If they even read it, he even said, if they even read it or if they, if they even read it, what, what they would change. Uh, <laughs> so it's funny. Um, they actually don't believe it's accurate. But I just wonder what they would want to change if they want to change anything. <laughs> so that's what my son said as he's listening in uh, to me watching uh, this this episode of of uh, Rediscovering Bethel. So Bill Johnson then moves on and uses the phrase "the mandate on our house." So it's NAR terminology where they will sound super super spiritual, use these super spiritual language, and uh, really, what what's a mandate? Um, Where's that from? And on our house, do do they mean um, the house? You know, the 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 building they meet in is like a uh, an old renovated gym. Um, I mean, this plays into their their fathering idea. So uh, they talk about uh, fathering a lot. Bill Johnson's the father of the house, so you know you gotta. You got a family and a house, right? And so the father is the father of this house. So the mandate on this house is this, that, and the other thing. It's, it's a theological perspective that there's a father figure in the lead, and he's the father of the house, of course. Um, they even call him Papa Bill. Um, Dan is not addressing him as Papa Bill so far in this series, but he certainly is called Papa Bill uh, there at Bethel um, because he's the dad of the house. And so when they say mandate on this house... Um, they're talking about uh, their dad, Papa Bill, and the father mandates where the family's going. Uh, this is all very, very cult-like and extremely sectarian language. No one else in Christianity uses the language uh, that these guys use. Uh, no one else that I'm aware of talks about mandates on houses, um, members or lay people. This is very, very controlling language. So the mandate on our house is this, and you have to follow the mandate, basically, you know, who decides what the mandate is. Of course, Bill does. So, so, uh, Bill wants to extend their community, uh, globally. So that's why they talk about mandates on this house. And, and if you want to sort of align with us as, as our movement, then, uh, you'll do the things that are, that we're doing, you know, you'll, you'll follow the mandates on our house and the mandates on this house are praying for the sick, laying hands on them, healing them. And how do you do that? How do you learn how to do that? Um, and they're shipping their theology and their practice and their training everywhere all throughout the world. Um, and, uh, so they, 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 they do try to conjure it up, you know, teach people how to do that. You can't work yourself into being a healer. But Bill would have us believe, Bethel would have us believe that you can learn it, you can conjure it up, you can work yourself into being a healer uh, like Jesus. Um, it's what they teach. It's just the basis of their, it's the, it's the DNA of their movement. So Jesus, interestingly though, either heals people or he doesn't. You know, in the Bible, he doesn't, he doesn't conjure it up, he doesn't work it up, he doesn't, you know, um, get trained in healing, um, you know. So it's interesting. 
Jesus either healed people or he didn't. He didn't conjure it up. Then Dan Fairley talks about moving in signs and wonders or moving in the prophetic. Again, this is NAR speak. Uh, for um, what their what their DNA is, they move in signs and wonders. They move in the prophetic. So then he um, says he compares them and moving in signs and wonders and moving in the prophetic with other churches who just basically ask, "Do you know Jesus?" So again, these guys are really good at insulting everyone else in Christianity, ostracizing themselves from other Christians who would ask the question. Do you know Jesus instead of moving in signs and wonders? So because they're not moving in signs and wonders, they're really narrow-minded. They're they're minimizing the work of God to just knowing Jesus. And uh, this kind of rhetoric ostracizes Christianity, insults other branches of the faith. All other churches who don't move in signs and wonders are boring churches who don't discuss the right things. They 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 only ask in the question, "Do you know Jesus?" instead of trying to heal people, basically. Um, so um, this is uh, again, like I said, inflammatory and accusatory to other churches that are basically boring. They're not doing the right thing. Um, they're not doing the right stuff. They're they're non signs and wonders people. And, um, so yeah, this is again, uh, they talk a big game about being unified and ecumenicalism, but they don't do it. Um, they only unify and do ecumenicalism with people who would not, um, who would be, be okay with moving in signs and wonders. But those people who just talk about Jesus, he just, he just condemns them all. Um, for being not as spiritual and boring. So they use language that drives people away. It ostracizes other denominations, um, other type of churches who don't have prophets or apostles. Um, so they do it themselves. They shoot themselves in the foot and ostracize and isolate and ins insulate themselves from other Christian denominations through this type of language, this type of rhetoric. Um, so Fairley does a good job at condemning everyone else who doesn't move in signs and wonders. Uh, Fairly does admit that they're not good at representing the gospel once someone is moving in signs and wonders. When they're out in the world, I guess, or they're not good at, at it and they don't take one step further to invite people to salvation. So not only are they not good at it, I've never seen it. <laughs> I've never seen a video. So they have these videos everywhere of, of people going out in the street and, and lengthening a leg or, you know, trying to pray for someone for their headache or, or whatever. Right. But not only are they not good at presenting the gospel, I've never, ever, ever seen someone just then take the time and present the gospel to someone. It's always like Jesus loves you. He's got a great plan for your life. And then they just sort of move on. Maybe they'll talk to them a little longer or whatever, but I've never seen someone present the gospel to someone and, and then maybe even like lead them to Christ, right? Uh, they may claim that they have done that. I've never seen it. I've never seen someone on the street through their, um, through their type of videos that the NAR put out. Um, you know, even you think about all the, the Holy Ghost films that Darren Wilson puts out. Um, I've never seen someone receive Christ on those things, truly through gospel presentation. They'll heal someone, they'll pray with someone, they'll say, God has a great plan for your life and, and move on. So um, they're not doing it. Not only are they not good at it, they're not doing it. <laughs> um, so 
maybe they say Jesus did this for you or something like that, but I've never heard one preach the gospel. Yeah, even the earliest, earliest film in these things, The Finger of God, until now, I've never heard someone preach the gospel of sin and repentance, share Jesus with them, invite the person to receive Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of their sins. I have never seen it. Look, please, in the comments, if you have a video where someone was healed and, you know, on a street type thing and, and they're going out and doing moving in signs and wonders and someone is led to Christ through repentance and faith in the substitutionary, vicarious work of Jesus Christ, I would love to see it. <laughs> Post it. Put it down here. I'd love to see that video. But it's just not, it's not out there. They don't do it. They're not, not only are they not good at it, they don't do it. So um, that's, that's what Dan Fraley says. They're not good at it, but not only are they not good at it, they just don't do it. They don't teach their people to preach the gospel. They don't teach their people to know the word of God. Uh, they don't teach their people to understand the true gospel of Jesus Christ, to preach it, to live it, and to pass it on. Um, they are teaching people to move in signs and wonders and to move in the prophetic, but they don't teach them to preach the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I think they don't do that because I think they actually truly, probably when it comes down to it, believe that every person is a child of God. Like I said earlier, you know, they, they try to teach people their new identity and they're embracing their identity in Jesus Christ, but not everyone is a child of God. And so if you're watching today um, and, and you, maybe you are part of the NAR, maybe you've, you're stuck with me this long and you think this was interesting, um, hey, great, thanks for sticking with. But I want to challenge you to put your faith in Jesus Christ alone for the forgiveness of your sins, to become a new creation. You are not a new creation on your own. Uh, the, the sin that so easily entangles us, the Bible says, um, is is and can be forgiven by God when we put our faith in the vicarious, substitutionary, atoning work of Jesus Christ. That's just a fancy way of saying we deserved punishment for our sins, but God stood in our place and sent Christ to die a death we deserve to die because the Bible says the wages of sin is death. But the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So if you have never put your faith in Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of those sins, if you put your faith in Jesus Christ, you can be free from the wages of sin, which is death. And you can be sure that you will have an eternity with God in heaven. It's our inheritance once we put our faith in Jesus Christ. So I beg you, put your faith in Jesus Christ. What are you waiting for? Do it today. And for those who uh, have stuck with me to the end, uh, thanks for watching. Um, this was episode two of Rediscovering Bethel. And uh, any comments, questions, thoughts, Rotten Tomatoes, put them in the comments. Love to hear, love to see a video of someone who has actually led someone to Jesus Christ through one of those... Um, leg lengthening, you know, street trips or whatever. If you've got something, I'd love to see it. Uh, but I just don't think it exists. Uh, I doubt it. 
So anyways, thanks for listening to this episode of Church Produce Podcast. You can find out more about my ministry at richardpmore.net. I also blog at richardpmore.blogspot.com. You're welcome to follow me on Twitter if you do that kind of thing. My handle is at richardpmore.net. You can also email us at churchpreneurs at gmail.com. That's church and entrepreneurs slammed into one awesome word, churchapreneur at gmail.com. Love to hear from you. If you have any ideas for a podcast or any comments, questions, please reach out on one of those platforms. God bless you. Until next time, take care.